we have special guest on uh, Skype with us. Uh, there's a thing called valve turners. Now that, first of all, that uh, uh, that should be a musical group, right? The valve turners overdrive. <laughs> and uh, I love that name. So what valve turners are, we're gonna find out more about it, but so they take direct action against fossil fuel companies and you know where the, uh, where the oil comes out of the ground, they go turn the valves off and they're called valve turners. And uh, so there's a bunch of these people who um, have been in, they got caught and they got indicted. And right now we're gonna meet uh, a valve turner. Her name is Emily Johnstone and she's from Seattle. She's a self-described poet, scribe, climate activist, a runner and a builder. She's the author of the book, My Animals. And she, along with four other valve turners, armed with a bolt cutter, cell phones, and a video recorder and a mission, they cut their way onto a pipeline facility in Minnesota and shut down five Enbridge Energy Company pipelines carrying tar sands oil from Canada into the United States. And she faced jail time up to 22 years. So let's go ahead and say hello to Emily Johnstone. Hi, Emily, how are you? Hi, Jimmy. Nice to meet you. Wow, it's really an honor to meet you. And I'm really always in awe of people like you who, um, you know, don't sit on your couch or don't yell into a camera, but actually put your body in harm's way to uh, help uh, the the world and the environment. So my hat's off to you. And so tell me what happened. So you, uh, how did you get the idea to become a valve turner? And can tell me specifically what happened in this case where you had to go to court and you were facing 22 years? Yeah, so there were five of us, uh, friends who'd been talking about uh, this for some time, some months, uh, and doing research on the safety aspects and, uh, you know, pretty much everything else, the likely uh, charges, et cetera. Um, and, you know, we were motivated by the urgent need to act on climate and the fact that tar sands oil is the most carbon intensive of all the, um, of all kinds of oil. Uh, and, you know, in 2015, there was a study that talked about uh, which fossil fuel projects we could not pursue and still hope to stay, still uh, hope to avoid catastrophic climate change. Um, and one of the things they said was that by 2020, we had to be drilling, quote, a negligible amount of uh, tar sands. Uh, instead, these companies are trying to ramp up production uh, and double or triple their capacity, et cetera. Um, so we felt it was really important to shine a light on the disastrous nature of tar sands uh, and the urgency of climate change in general. Um, so, so yes. So you went on to uh, Enbridge Energy Company's pipelines. You did some valve turning, and you got arrested for that. Yeah. So we actually there the the five of us were at five different pipelines in four states. So uh, my friend Annette and I were in Minnesota. Uh, our friend Michael was in North Dakota. Our friend Leonard was in Montana and Ken was in Washington state. And, um, you know, we, all of our trials happened, you know, in the states at the state level. Uh, and the, the final one was the one uh, this month in Minnesota. Uh, and the reason for that was that a month, a year ago, excuse me, in October, 2017, our judge granted us what's called the necessity defense. Uh, and then the prosecution appealed that, it, the appellate court uh, voted with us and upheld it. 
Uh, and then the state Supreme Court also upheld it again by refusing to hear a second appeal. So that's why, the, you know, it was almost two years to the day after the action when we were finally tried. Uh, and, uh, you know, and it, it was it promised to be an incredibly exciting and important trial. And then some pretty weird stuff happened. So so you so the judge found in your favor last October 2017 when he uh, he granted you a necessity defense. And what is that? Uh, what that means is it's an old piece of common law, uh, and it says that, it, for example, it is not illegal to break into a burning building if you hear a baby crying, something like that. You know, uh, it is not illegal for a captain to throw all of his cargo overboard, um, you know, that, that belongs to other people uh, if the ship would sink otherwise. So if there is a higher necessity involved, uh, and our argument is absolutely that we have to shut down these tar sands pipelines, and therefore it is essentially legal to do so uh, because the greater harm that we're avoiding is catastrophic climate change. Did you expect that decision from the judge or was that, because that's surprising to me that a judge anywhere in the United States would go along mm -hmm. with that. So is this a, just a unique judge who happened, was he appointed by uh, was he my McGovern? Who appointed this guy? <laughs> I, I don't. It's a good question. I don't know that. Um, I'm pretty sure there he was elected actually uh, okay. in, in that community. Um, so it is not unique in the sense that this has certainly been used politically before. It has not been used in its sort of fullest format on uh, for a climate defense. Uh, and there there have been a couple uh, times when judges have said, "Yeah, we want to hear what you have to say about that," uh, and then for one reason or another. The trial didn't happen. So, for example, uh, our friend Ken was engaged in one of those first cases in, a, in an a action called the lobster boat black blockade in Massachusetts in 2014, I believe it was. Um, and and then, you know, it, they had all these great expert witnesses lined up. And then on the day the trial was supposed to start, the prosecutor dropped all charges because he said he agreed with them that they're, that they're stopping this coal board, coal boat, excuse me, from coming into port was actually necessary because climate change, uh, you know, is that much of a threat and that urgent. Wow. So, I mean, I, I'm just kind of uh, shocked so, so Jimmy, by that. Go ahead. Uh, to clarify, um, hi, Emily, this is Steve speaking. Thank you for being on the show. And okay. like Jimmy, I greatly admire what you guys do. Uh, so, Jimmy, uh, the judge isn't saying that Emily's defense is valid and that she wins. He's just granting her the right to assert that defense. Oh, okay. Exactly. Yeah, and and then that will be usually tried by a jury of her peers as to whether that defense is valid. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's just a right to assert the defense. So he didn't throw out the case in October last year, 2017. No. But the new, no. but recently that did get your case did get dismissed, correct? Yeah. So what happened was really complicated and and super. Um, Disheartening, actually, uh, because, you know, the judge knew all along that we intended to bring all these expert witnesses. You know, for a year and a half, he'd had different lists uh, of, you know, Dr. James Hansen, the former head of the NASA Goddard Space Center, uh, Bill McKibben, a writer and the founder of 350.org, one of the big grassroots climate organizations, um, and then and lots of other really important uh, uh expert witnesses to talk about the rationale behind what we did and the fact that, uh, so that the, the necessity defense has what are called four elements to it. And that is number one, the harm you're trying to prevent has to be greater than the harm you're creating by breaking the law. Uh, number two, uh, you have to have no legal alternatives. Um, you know, there can't be, there couldn't have been, you know, an open door for you to go get that baby, uh, you know, or something like that. Um, and number three, you have to have had a reasonable, uh, 
belief that what you did was going to actually matter and, and help to solve the problem. Um, and so we had people to speak to each of those elements uh, and um, they were lined up, they were all ready to come, some were already in Minnesota. Uh, and uh, then four days before trial, uh, it, the judge issued a ruling that we were not going to be uh, allowed to have any expert witnesses talk about climate change, talk about the uh, effectiveness of civil disobedience, or talk about the fact that there are, in fact, no legal alternatives at this moment in time because the legal alternatives are not working. Um, so we had the the dream trial, uh, you know, witnesses all lined up to speak for us and be very persuasive. Um, and then the judge said, well, you can talk about climate change and those other things, um, but we you can't have any expert witnesses talk about it. And what that did was really to gut our case because that meant, you know, I mean, I'm a poet from Seattle. Why would the jury listen to me uh, as to how urgent a problem climate change is? They might actually listen to Dr. James Hansen, former head of the NASA Goddard Space Center. So, so how did your case get dismissed? It seems like the judge was unbelievably biased and being ridiculous and trying to, again, gut your case. So how did he also then decide that you could, your, the charges would be dismissed against you? Yeah, the whole thing was very strange. So it, the judge had initially seemed incredibly reasonable. He's the one who granted us this defense. Um, and uh, and there was no sign whatsoever he was going to do something like that, where we couldn't use the uh, the witnesses. Uh, and we were hopeful really up until the last minute that we would get some sort of uh, modification of that, at least. Uh, and then the trial did, in fact, start. The, the jury was seated, uh, you know, took all day one day on jury selection. Uh, and it was clear that that most of the jury members didn't actually um, accept the science, the science of climate change, um, which was distressing, of course. But again, we thought that if we could get the right people in front of them, they might change their minds and you know, be willing to think about something else. And, uh, and then on the second day of the trial, after the prosecutor arrested his case, uh, our, one of our lawyers made what's called a, a motion for judgment of acquittal. And it's completely pro forma. Uh, it's, you know, lawyers do it almost all the time after the prosecution arrests his case. It essentially never works. And what it says is uh, like, hey, we don't think the prosecution presented enough evidence that a reasonable jury could possibly convict. Uh, and our lawyer went ahead and made that motion um, and the judge agreed. Uh, and the truth is like that made a lot of sense because in fact, the final charge that we were left with on the day of the trial was damage to pipeline. And there had been no damage whatsoever to the pipeline. Um, you know, there was only damage to a few chains that uh, helped us to access the pipeline. Um, and so it was a perfectly reasonable thing for him to agree with our lawyer on that and acquit us. But it was very strange that that was how everything shook out. And Steve-O has a theory of why that judge did that. Steve, go ahead. Yeah, hi, Emily. So this is a fascinating conversation. It takes me back to my law school days uh, of criminal law. And um, so it, it was fun for me in that regard. But I think I know what's going on here. And let me ask you if you agree. So um, I, what's happening here is that uh, if you were to proceed with your full case and all the charges that were uh, levied against you in the beginning were still uh, pending, and you had a team of expert witnesses who can testify as to why the necessity defense uh, makes, makes sense for you uh, in, in this instance, that would be a, a, a real problem for um, corporations and, and you know, these uh, tar sands people for years. Because then if the jury acquits, and they probably will, because the jury are like you. Uh, they're like me, you, and regular ordinary Americans and citizens who want a safe 
uh, um, a safe environment and, and a clean uh, place to live in this world, they're going to acquit you. That is going to be a precedent-setting case and that will empower citizens everywhere to do exactly what you did. And they don't want that. Um, they, they can't risk that. So they have to drop all the charges and only have that one charge of damage to a pipeline, which didn't even occur to remain there, which enables a judge to rightfully dismiss it. So this, to, to them, was a case that they could not risk taking all the way to a verdict by a jury and become a precedent-setting case uh, globally. Uh, what are your thoughts on that theory? Uh, um, I I think some version of that is probably true. Uh, and the question is, so, uh, you know, what made the judge change his mind, you know, when he wanted to hear what we had to say and he knew exactly the case we intended to present with what witnesses, you know, and at any point in that year, year and a half, he could have said, he could have put uh, constraints on the defense we were going to provide, and he did not. Um, so... Yeah, so something happened to make him change his mind or he got concerned about the precedent, perhaps. Uh, and this has happened in other cases as well, where where it looked as though there was going to be a full necessity defense case on climate. And then uh, for one reason or another, it didn't happen. Emily, and a quick question. Did the prosecutors drop the other charges along the way after the, after the judge granted you the right to assert the necessity defense? Yes. Okay, and, so that's and what happened, yeah. And, and and what's interesting about that is I think that actually was a case of overreach on the part of the prosecution mm-hmm. because uh, I think the prosecution, once we were allowed to present the necessity defense, was afraid that the jury might, you know, so to speak, split the baby uh, and feel that they had to convict us on something but not want to convict us on the largest charge. So they got rid of all the smaller charges um, and left us with, you know, the damage, critical damage to pipelines, uh, you know, which is the one they, they simply couldn't, uh, you know, uh, prove because it didn't happen. Right. This is this is Malcolm. And so, Emily, to clarify, uh, my understanding is, oh, you you got onto the property and then you alerted the companies. All of you separately alerted the companies. Look, we are here and we're going to shut this valve off. Uh, exactly. Or you can do it remotely yourselves, and they exactly. all chose to do it remotely themselves. So you, that's why you didn't actually do any damage to the pipeline. You didn't you didn't actually turn any valves. Uh, well, we did turn the valve, but not for very long. Oh, okay. It wasn't what shut it off. And and but, but even if we had turned the valves, it wouldn't have done damage. They're they're meant to be. They're right. they're designed to be used uh, in the case of an emergency. Uh, and our argument is that this was in fact, and it is in fact, an emergency. Um, and and to go back uh, to Jimmy's, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Steve's point for a second about the precedent. You know, the question becomes like, you know, who is afraid of this trial happening? You know, it. it Clearly, the pipeline companies do not want these trials to happen. Uh, the pipeline companies are not supposed to be in charge, right? It should be the the state, the prosecution. And so, you know, to what extent are the pipeline companies pressuring the state uh, in, in order to make make certain that these necessity necessity defense trials do not happen? Um, and the other point I'd like to make about that is that. I think, you know, this argument that there will suddenly be chaos and everybody will feel empowered to shut off pipelines is a straw man in a lot of ways, because in fact, you know, the part of the point of using this argument is to make it clear that if a jury of our peers agrees with us that climate change is such a threat uh, that that it, 
citizens might have to do something like this, then that actually begins to change everything and it becomes less essential for that argument to be made. You know, so yes, indeed, there might be a period in which people feel, you know, emboldened in the kind of direct action that they take. But in fact, it would give us a lot more faith in the legal system, honestly, if the legal system were responding properly by allowing these trials to happen. You know, the fact that these trials are not happening, the fact that science is being kept out of these courtrooms is really the crazy part, right? I mean, the laws of physics are not allowed in a court of law right now with regard to climate change. Uh, and that is something, you know, that, that is a center that cannot hold. Um, so, Steph, do you have any uh, well, questions? You do. Hi, Emily, this is Steph Zamorano. And I was just looking, I went to 350seattle.org and I was looking at the website because I wanted to familiarize myself with it. And I see that there's uh, going to be a film uh, that's going to be The Reluctant Radical Screening. Mm -hmm. And I, I also was reading it how um, that people can make donations to help the legal costs for uh, the valve turners. Do you want to speak about that briefly? Yeah, sure. If anybody's more interested in um, in learning about us, uh, there are screenings of this movie, The Reluctant Radical. That actually is a is a movie about Ken, uh, you know, our friend and uh, peer uh, colleague who uh, shut down the valve in uh, Washington State. Uh, there's a filmmaker who followed him for a couple of years. It's quite well done. Definitely recommend it. Um, and then, if you want to learn more about what we did and why, Shut It Down Today is our website, uh, and uh, there's a Facebook page as well for climate direct action. Um, you know, it's really important that people understand, you know, the urgency of this moment uh, if, in the climate fight. And obviously at the federal level, nobody is expecting any good uh, positive action on climate. And we really have only a year or two to start making significant changes. So that means we've got to get things done at the state level and at the city level. Uh, there's actually quite a lot we still can do. And we also need to be fighting as hard as we can just so that, you know, other people understand how urgent this is. Uh, and that impacts, obviously, right now, you know, the thing to be thinking about is everybody's voting. Um, and, uh, you know, that we need to be working every angle we can, uh, you know, mostly legal, obviously, and then the occasional use of strategic civil disobedience as well. And so what, what, what is, do you have a electoral strategy, uh, people like you, you know, activists who uh, really know what's going on? Like, do you think, um, uh, voting for a Democrat. So the Democratic National Committee just reversed their previous ban on taking fossil fuel money, and now yeah. they are taking it again. And it seems to me like the Democratic Party as a whole doesn't really care about climate change. Barack Obama opened the Arctic to drilling twice whenever Shell Oil asked, and he said to Apple, we're going to let it play out. So what do you have? A, what, how do you feel about our electoral process and how people should vote? It's uh, you know, the, our electoral process is disheartening, but it's super, super important. And the the thing is that Democrats can be shamed. And, and at this point in time, Republicans can't be. You know, uh, uh, Obama, uh, you know, uh, made the deciding uh, the decision finally against Keystone XL, um, you know, and, and was somebody who understood the realities of climate change and at least wasn't totally fighting on the global level against, uh, you know, progress on climate. So, you know, the Democrats are certainly deeply imperfect. I would never argue otherwise, but they can be shamed. And a lot of them, their heart is in the right place. And we can push hard with the Democrats. We can't obviously push with the Republicans right now. 
Yeah, you know, um, we need radical change to fight climate change right now. I mean, radical, or else yeah. we're, we're on a four degree Celsius change by the end of the century. Best estimates say we're on two degrees, which is already catastrophic. So yeah. you're, but so you still think incrementalism with Democrats is is a is a good strategy? No, 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 absolutely not. Uh, but it's but it's one of the strategies, right? We need to be using all of them. And so, like I, we engaged in this action when Obama was president. And to be clear, none of us expected uh, the the 2016 uh, presidential election to go the way that it did. Um, so we are very clear that we need to push uh, Democrats as well and as hard as we possibly can. It's just that you know action at the federal level becomes impossible if Republicans continue to hold, uh, you know, the the House. Um, and, you know, we just need to be doing everything at every level, flat right. out. And and I really do think, actually, that the city and state uh, uh, things that we can get done are super important. The vast majority of Americans live in cities. Uh, and therefore, if we can reduce our climate emissions in cities in a really rapid uh, way, that can be uh, a super important thing to achieve, regardless of what's happening at the federal level. All right. Well, Emily, I really pre we're, we're out of time. Thanks so much for spending time with us, and thanks for being thank an activist and bringing awareness to just how dire uh, this is. So thank, thank you, you again. Thank you again, thank you. and congrats on uh, getting your case dismissed and not having to do jail time. All right. Thank you very much. Okay. Bye bye.